0: was our uh, third Advent season in Henrietta, Texas, which is a small small town 22 miles this side of Wichita Falls. I was in just my third year as a senior pastor, which meant uh, that I was still very much learning the ropes. Now, I had grown up in the church, as you've heard me say many times, albeit in a in a different tradition. And I had spent six years on the staff of our home church in Richardson before the bishop sent us to Henrietta. And so I knew what Advent was all about. But like anything else, it takes time to learn how to be the senior pastor of a church. It's a pretty complicated job, really. And First United Methodist Church of Henrietta sees itself as a congregation that teaches young pastors how to be senior pastors. It's a a role that First Henrietta plays extremely well and our our time there was some of the most formative of our family's life. We will always uh, deeply love that congregation. If you've known me for any length of time, uh, you've probably picked up on the fact that I love this time of year. Uh, There is a not insignificant part of me that is very much like Buddy the Elf in the weeks and now days leading up to Christmas. There is no amount of excitement that is over the top for me my countdown to Christmas uh, usually begins early in January, like January 2nd, I'll just be honest with you, I start counting down the days. And because that is true, uh, I very much emphasize the joy and the hope and the anticipation of Advent. My preaching during this season, you perhaps have noticed, tends to lean into this part of my personality, and I would uh, absolutely prefer to stay there uh, in joy and in hope and in anticipation this time of year. But in December of 2012, uh, early in the stage of my career as a senior pastor, I I had to face, uh, we all had to face, the world as it is, as opposed to the world as we wish it would be. Uh, Even this most magical time of the year is not exempt from tragedy and suffering, because in December of 2012, the worst thing that any of us can imagine happened. It was a Friday morning, December 14th. I was in the Parsonage, which is right next door to the church. I had the TV on as I was uh, getting ready to head over to my office at the church. I was wrapping up my sermon that day. I was in the middle of a, of a series based on my favorite movie of all time, certainly Christmas movie, favorite Christmas movie of all time. It's a Wonderful Life. And I was scheduled to preach uh, that week about joy, which is, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse this time of year. But then I saw the news. There had been a, a shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, at an elementary school, of all things. And I, you know the story, of course. Twenty children lost their lives, along with six uh, teachers and staff. Our oldest was in kindergarten at the time, and my instinct as a parent, like I'm sure uh, many of you, was to go pick him up, take him out of school, and never let him leave the house again. <laughs> and I was I was confronted uh, as a pastor with how to respond in this, this season of wonder and joy and celebration, my favorite time of the year. <laughs> what are we to do? What, what are we to say? Um, what does our faith expect of us when tragedy strikes? And all of this is on my mind because this past Wednesday, December 14th, was the, the 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook. A tragedy that's been compounded, it seems to me, by our inability in its aftermath to agree on ways to prevent it from happening again, as Uvalde reminded us this year. And for me, uh, since that awful day in 2012, every December 14th is an annual reminder that even during this wonderful time of the year, As people of faith, we are called to live as witnesses to Christ in the world as it is, as opposed to the world as we wish it would be. Which means that during Advent, it's important to ask ourselves um, what the stories of this season have to teach us about times of darkness and times of tragedy. And as it turns out, our scripture reading for today has something to say about living as faithful witnesses in the world when it is not always the, the holly jolly place that we sing about in our Christmas songs. Uh, this is the third and final week of our Advent sermon series we've been calling Heavenly Peace. Uh, so far we've talked about the prophecy of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah, as well as that prophecy's fulfillment in the birth of Christ as told by the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So having read the story of his birth a couple of weeks ago, we're actually going to be jumping ahead a bit today. The wise men have come from the east. They have presented their gifts to the newborn king, and then they've, they've left without telling Herod where he was because they sensed something sinister in the tyrant who was so strangely eager to find the child. And as it, as it turns out, their suspicion was well-founded. So this is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, we'll come back and read a little bit more later. Uh, Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Matthew. Now after they had left, they being the magi, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if we were to keep reading as the lectionary recommends us to do, we, we're gonna skip these verses, but the verses tell uh, a story of fear. It's fear that motivates violence, and that violence is against the innocent. Herod uh, fears that the baby sought by the Magi will be a threat to his hold on power, and so when he hears that the wise men have left without telling him where the baby is, Herod uh, orders the killing of all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. It is a, an unimaginable act of cruelty in the midst of this glorious story of the Messiah's birth, in this story of joy and hope, a story that we typically um, identify, associate with the traditions and sentimentality of the advent and Christmas seasons In the midst of that, Herod shifts the narrative uh, to a very dark place. And his order was reminiscent of the order of Pharaoh in Egypt so many centuries before to kill all the male children of the Hebrews living in Egypt at the time. Like, Like Herod, Pharaoh was motivated by fear, fear that manifested itself terrible violence. And ironically, it is to Egypt that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are told to flee by God as refugees to escape the atrocity of Herod. We were talking about it this week. Uh, I wonder how many of us have heard a sermon on this text. Um, We may have read it in a Bible study, Uh, We may know the story from the tradition, we may have seen a movie that includes it, we may be familiar with the Coventry Carol, which uh, the choir is gonna sing for us here shortly, but the thing is, this passage only comes up in the lectionary once every three years, and in that lectionary cycle, it is always the recommended reading for the Sunday after Christmas, (laughs) with the verses that we skipped included. And let's face it, who wants to hear this story during the 12 days of Christmas. This is not a very Christmassy story. I I don't wanna hear it during the 12 days of Christmas. But the thing is, as people of faith, we are called to live as witnesses of Christ in the world as it is, as opposed to the world as we wish it would be. And the reality is that there is tragedy and suffering and loss, even during this most wonderful time of the year. And so uh, we don't have the luxury of ignoring reality as God's faithful. I'm comforted by the fact that scripture does not ignore it either, and that's because even the family of the Messiah went through a difficult time, a dark time, not long after his birth. Of the four gospels, it is Matthew, who is most concerned with Christ's connection to the Old Testament. Our story today uh, echoes the, the Patriarch Joseph from the book of Genesis, who was also guided by dreams to make a way for God's purposes in the world. Our passage today also contains very distinct echoes of the baby Moses, who, like the baby Jesus, was saved from the darkness of the world. And in a kind of reverse exodus, the God who once delivered God's people out of Egypt to escape the the tyrant who was willing to do terrible things in order to hold on to power, That, that same God now sends the Messiah back to Egypt to escape another tyrant who was willing to do terrible things in order to hold on to power. And we're told that all of this was to fulfill a prophecy about the Messiah found in the prophet Hosea, Chapter 11, verse 1, that full verse reads this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As Christians, of course, we believe that it is the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Messiah that would redeem the world. All right, so how does the Holy Family get back to uh, Israel? Let's finish it up. This is Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to, go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, we jump, we jump ahead 20 some odd years to the baptism of Jesus, which we'll read about in early January. So when the season of Advent uh, began, on the first Sunday of Advent, we be, we we had a worship service called the Hanging of the Greens. It was Thanksgiving weekend for those who were in town. And that service um, explains the symbols of the season, symbols that I think we sometimes take for granted. We often forget, I think, that um, at least some of the symbols of the season, the traditional symbols of the season, have deep theological meaning. And one of those symbols is Christmas lights, which of course are ubiquitous this time of year. And rightfully so, because uh, they are symbols of the power of God to enter into the darkness and vanquish it. And if you've ever driven through um, the Deerfield neighborhood this time of year, <laughs> you know how just, just how powerfully the light can diminish the darkness. Check it out if you've not yet. It's pretty amazing before Christmas Eve. And as the gospel of John tells us, the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The light of Christ overcame the darkness through his teaching and his miracles and his works of power and his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection. And Matthew, having told the story of his birth in the first two chapters, then spends the next 26 chapters talking about how um, the light of Christ overcame the evil and suffering and sin and death and tragedy in the world. And then at the very end of the gospel, the last words of Matthew's Gospel. Record Jesus' promise to his disciples, which means his promise to us all. And remember, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The ever-present Christmas lights this time of year remind us that God is always with us, even in the darkest places. Two days after Sandy Hook, on a on a Sunday that I was preaching about joy in the middle of Advent and talking about my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life, I, I struggled with how to respond to the, the worst thing that any of us can imagine. With that wonderful congregation that is so committed to its work of, of teaching pastors how to be pastors, as a family of faith, we We worked through it together. It's what families of faith do. And we decided that our response should be light. And so on the altar rails at the front of the church, we put one tea light for every every child and every educator who had lost their lives on that terrible day. And each one of those lights represented each one of those blessed souls who were lost. And that light reminded us that even in our darkest hour, even in life's most discouraging difficulties, even when the world as it is falls so painfully short of the world as we wish it would be, the light of Christ still shines. <laughs> That's the, the promise of this season, which offers us the heavenly peace that we'll sing about this coming Saturday. And as I reflected on the, the 10th anniversary of Sandy Hook this week, I was reminded of so many people around the world for whom this season is not calm and bright. I I think of the people of Ukraine fighting an unjust war inflicted upon them by a modern day tyrant. And I think of the estimated 89 million people worldwide who like the Holy Family in our reading this morning are refugees from persecution and violence and war and human rights violations. I think of all those who are hungry or lonely or without shelter, even as we enjoy the the peace and beauty of this sanctuary this season. And I think of our responsibilities as disciples, first to be aware of the suffering of others and then to serve where we can and to give what we're able and to advocate when we should. And then I think of those among us at the individual level who are struggling this season. Now, I hope and pray that you're having a Buddy the Elf kind of December, (laughs) that your Advent is full of joy and peace and hope and love. But I know better than to think that everybody is experiencing this season that way. And if it's not that way for you, then remember that that even the joy-filled story of Christ's birth, our most beloved story, even that story had its share of hardship and tragedy. Whatever it is you're going through today, the promise of our faith as expressed by the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means that God is with us. That is the theology of this Gospel. Because God became one of us, God knows what each of us is going through and God is with us, all, through it all. Our longest night service on Tuesday is especially for those who are struggling this season. Uh, It was not long before we moved to Henrietta um, that my oldest son and I, Max, and I were um, driving up Preston Road. It was in December, it was this time of year. He was three years old, had just turned three. And we were sitting at the intersection of Park and Preston. And uh, I was in a hurry. (laughs) I was running late to meet Whitney for dinner in between the countless to-do lists that we all have this time of year. It was not a great, not not an easy season. And it was dark, of course, because uh, it gets dark so early this time of year. And we were stopped in traffic, which is like one of my least favorite things to be stopped in traffic. And we were surely listening to Christmas music. And I'm, I'm sure I was annoyed. I'm sure I was stressed. I'm sure I was feeling overwhelmed. It's not all joy and wonder all the time, after all, not for any of us. And that's when, when Max looked out the window and he saw that giant tree at the intersection of Park and Preston, you know the one I'm talking about? I'm still there. And it was glowing with the colors of the season. And he pointed at it and said, Christmas is light, Daddy. Hmm. And in that four word sermon, my little boy said exactly what I needed to hear. Friends, with six days to go till Christmas Eve, may every Christmas light you see, lights that surround us everywhere this time of year, may every one of those remind you that God is ever with us, even, maybe especially, when things are darkest. And may that gospel truth bring you that heavenly peace that Jesus offers every one of us. Amen.